You're listening to Cathedral Chronicles. In this episode, we will begin to explore the second building scheme that made monumental additions to Newry Cathedral between 1888 and 1892. We'll share newly uncovered details of the scheme that were not included in any of the previously published histories of the cathedral, thanks to research by Dalton Short. We'll take you behind the scenes inside the bell tower, where we'll find a collection of artefacts dating back to the earliest days of the cathedral. I'm Mark Byrne and I'm a member of a team that has been researching the history of Newry Cathedral for many years. Our guest contributors for this episode are Louis Spencer, Dalton Short and Linda Byrne. Follow us on Facebook to see photographs of many of the artefacts that will be described during this episode. The link is in the description. Dr Thomas McGivern was born at Ballynanny in the parish of Annaclone in December 1827. He was educated at St Coleman's College Newry and the Irish College in Rome. He was ordained on the 17th of December 1854. As we heard in episode 4, he was appointed as coadjutor Bishop of Dromore to assist the elderly Dominican Bishop Pius Leahy on the 18th of January 1887 at the age of 59. He was consecrated on March 6th of that same year, 1887, at Newry Cathedral by Dr Donnelly of Clogher, assisted by Dr Logue of Ruffaut, and Dr McAllister down in Connor, with Bishop Leahy preaching. Dr McGivern was almost immediately given full responsibility for overseeing the day-to-day work of the second great phase of cathedral building. A key initial task was to find a suitable architect to design the scheme of improvements. It was common practice at the time for open invitations to tender to be issued or for competitions to be held to attract a series of potential designs for major building works. In the case of the second phase of Newry Cathedral, we know that there was more than one proposal submitted. The brilliant young Belfast architect and builder Timothy Heavey, designer of Ormo Park, submitted plans for a new chancel and enlargements and improvements for the cathedral in 1877. His design was not selected but he was engaged to design a new three-storey block and tower for St Coleman's College at Violet Hill. Sadly, he died aged just 33 in December 1878 from congestion of the lungs caused by a severe cold that he is said to have caught whilst on a business trip to Newry. His designs for St Coleman's College were completed a year after his death. Ultimately, it was the scheme designed by Heavey's former employer, George Coppinger Ashland, that was chosen. Ashland was born in 1837 into a prominent, respected and influential Cork Catholic family, the Coppingers. They were an old burgher family of Danish origin who also had English connections and they occupied important commercial and civic positions in Cork City with many of them serving as mayors and aldermen. They were also well connected to the Catholic Church and it is said that they were responsible for introducing the Capuchins to Cork in the 17th century. They even held the power to appoint parish priests to two Cork parishes, only losing this privilege under great protest in the latter part of the 18th century. The Coppingers married into prominent landowning families, and they preserved their religion and managed to retain their estates, even during times of great upheaval and adversity. George therefore knew, or was related to, many wealthy merchant families, and this would later smooth the path of the aspiring young architect. Ashland's eldest brother John entered his family business as a corn merchant, while his other brother Stephen became a priest in the Diocese of Cloyne. His sister Dorinda became a Sacred Heart nun. George was educated in Belgium and Birmingham, 
1856, he became an understudy of Edward Welby Pugin, the son of Augustus Welby Pugin, the most lauded exponent of the Gothic Revival and designer of the interiors of the Palace of Westminster, London, and its famous clock tower, erroneously known to many as Big Ben. During his apprenticeship, George moved from Birmingham to London, where he later studied at the Royal Academy for two years. Upon graduation, he went into partnership with Edward Pugin. He would set up the Dublin branch and oversee their contracts in Ireland. He married Edward Pugin's younger sister, Mary, in 1867. In 1903, he went into partnership with his former pupil, Thomas Aloysius Coleman, to trade under the name Ashlyn and Coleman. Ashlyn has been described as a tall, commanding figure with an appearance of distinction, but it has also been noted that he had a quiet and retiring disposition with a certain inherent shyness. Ashland was a prolific architect, with a lengthy list of works to his name by the time he began work at Newry, most notably the Cathedral of St Coleman Cove, which was still under construction. Ashland would have been familiar with Newry, as he had recently designed Newry's Dominican Church, the Church of the Sacred Heart and St Catherine of Siena, dedicated 17th of October 1875, and the Associated Priory, completed 1881, and finally the spire of that same church, which was completed in 1884. He designed much of the interior details also, including the benches, mosaics and high altar. The quality of his work, therefore, was easily available for appraisal by the diocese. The second phase is arguably the biggest stage of construction to take place after the initial building of the cathedral. An article published in the Newry Reporter on the 24th September 1887 gives the following description of the planned work. A number of extensive alterations, which have recently been in contemplation, are about to be made in the Hill Street Cathedral. Judging from the excellent and comprehensive plans which have been drawn out by the eminent architect Mr Ashlin, the internal arrangement of the building will not only be rendered exceedingly commodious but greatly enhanced. The contract comprises the entire reseeding of the edifice, which will be one of the most conspicuous and useful of the improvements. Two transepts are also included in the design, in addition to the erection of a couple of vestries and a bell tower. The plan also included a new organ gallery, porches, altars, communion railings, confessionals and more. Mr Richard Hines, with an office in William Street, Newry, was the clerk of works. He would have overseen the day-to-day work alongside Bishop McGivern. The scale of these improvements merits a deeper exploration than a single 20-minute episode would permit, so we will cover these works over this episode and the next. Although the transepts were the first improvements to be built up, we will, for the remainder of this episode, focus on the magnificent Bell Tower, probably the finest perpendicular Gothic tower in Ireland, and certainly the most striking addition to the cathedral. With the design selected, progress was rapid. A notice appeared in the New York Reporter on the 6th of February 1888 inviting tenders from stonecutters with a closing date on the 15th of the same month. Work on the tower began in that same year of 1888. The New Telegraph of November 16th 1893 reported that three different companies supplied the cut stone for the tower. Messrs Hugh Campbell and Son of Moor Quarries Newry supplied the cut stone for 20 feet of the tower. Mr Emerson of Newry and Ban Bridge supplied the material for two stages of the tower, equaling 40 feet. This was possibly Hugh Emerson, Stone and Marble Steamworks, 2 Basin Key, listed in the 1877 Belfast and Ulster Street Directory. Messrs Charles Ewan and Sons supplied the cut stone for the final two stages of the tower, equaling 52 feet. 
This is possibly Ewan and Sons, Quarry Owners, Monumental Works, Monaghan Street, Newry, listed in the 1901 edition of the same street directory. The setting and mason work was executed by day workmen. This article corroborates the claim made in earlier histories of the cathedral that the tower was entirely the work of Newry craftsmen. Halfway through the construction of the tower, on the 6th of April 1890, the Bishop of Dromore, Dr Pius Leahy, OP, died peacefully at Violet Hill at the age of 88. Dr McGivern automatically succeeded him as Bishop of Dromore. A week later, the Dundalk Democrat of the 13th of September reported that Dr Leahy had, for a few years previous to his death, been in a state of coma. If Dr Leahy had indeed been in a coma for the final years of his life, he would not have witnessed any of the additions to the cathedral and Dr McGivern must have single-handedly overseen the entire second phase of construction. It took a total of four years to complete the tower. The Irish News and Belfast Morning News of 19th of December 1892 announced that Today the magnificent tower of St Patrick's Cathedral Newry was completed, having been in the course of construction since the year 1888. It is a graceful and imposing structure, perhaps the finest in Ireland. A profuse display of bunting and the tolling of the chapel bell was a signal that the tower was completed. The tower, rising to a height of 140 feet, is in the same perpendicular Gothic style as the cathedral. It is more or less freestanding on three sides and is attached to the western façade of the northern transept. It has four stories or stages. Each story is marked by corresponding horizontal sections on the exterior. The amount of exterior decoration increases with the upper two stories. We will attempt now to briefly describe the appearance of the tower for the benefit of those listeners who would like to understand its architectural features. There will inevitably be some architectural jargon, but we'll do our best to make sense of it. The ground story is angular and plain, with a generous 9 feet by 6 feet recessed Gothic arched doorway on the western façade, a small Gothic window on the northern façade, and a domed niche with a semi-octagonal crown light window above, originally serving as a baptistry, which is built between the southern façade of the tower and the north aisle wall. The ground floor also serves as an entrance porch for the transept. The first story is the tallest part of the tower featuring two lancet windows on the west and north facades, each measuring 22 feet high and 1 foot wide, divided by a single horizontal crossbar or transom decorated with single catrafoil panels. A catrafoil is an ornamental detail of four leaves, resembling a flower often seen on Gothic churches. The story is topped with an arched cornice. We'll take you behind the scenes to visit the interior of this story in a moment. The third story is the smallest section vertically. It features four lancet windows on the north, east and west sides of the tower, each measuring four and a half feet high by eight inches wide. There's currently nothing inside this level except for some apparatus for the joy bells. The fourth story, the belfry, features a large unglazed gothic window on each side, measuring 20 feet high by six feet six inches wide on each side, with tracery and single transom flanked on each side by pilasters topped with crocketed pinnacles. Crockets are the little carved decorations of curled leaves, buds or flowers that look a bit like Brussels sprouts. There is a shallow balcony at the foot of each window consisting of six carved catrafoil perforated granite panels. Above each window arch is a blind arcade consisting of eight traceried panels. Above these, at the base of the crown, there is a cornice with eight identical grotesques, often mistakenly called gargoyles, that are said to weigh more than 800 kilograms each. The tower has a flat lead roof. The crown of the tower is exquisitely ornamented, 
but it is still very much in the perpendicular Gothic style, modelled as it was from the old Somerset Towers in England, especially the West Somerset variety, such as St Mary Magdalene Church Taunton, completed in 1508. The crown terminates in four lofty turrets, each surmounted by crocketed pinnacles. Between the ornamental turrets, there are perforated embrasured parapets, with Gothic tracery and catrafoil designs. At each corner of the tower, and also in the centre of each façade, there are projecting buttresses supporting eight slender spirelets topped with crocketed pinnacles, each spirelet resting on the backs of the aforementioned winged, pointed-eared grotesques. Whilst the grotesques might look menacing from the ground, when viewed close up, they have broad, cat-like, almost smiling faces. I'm here on the ground floor of the tower in the entrance porch. Many of you listening will have been baptised here, but I'm now going to climb a narrow winding granite staircase to the first floor and a room that nowadays few people ever see. If you're wondering why, it's because the Victorians had little or no interest in health and safety and there are many places behind the scenes where an unsuspecting visitor might quite suddenly come to a sticky end. So I'm here in the Tower of Newry Cathedral on the first story um, with Dalton and Louis who are the cathedral sacristans. So Dalton, can you describe what we're looking at here? So we're, we're on the first story. What, what does it look like here? Uh, we're on the first story of the cathedral bell tower. It contains the elecom rack, which is the manual operation for our joy bells. It also contains the rope for the bell known as Coleman, which is our toll bell. Uh, there's also a set of stairs that takes you up to the belfry level. This is the tallest room in the tower. The granite blocks that make up the walls are less polished inside than outside, and they have been whitewashed. The room is brightly lit, thanks to the powers of tall lancet windows on two walls. Three wooden ladders wind their way up one of the walls to a small hatch in the wooden floor high above. We also have a container here, a magnificent wooden one, which is inscribed with um, mostly the names of the altar boys throughout the years. And within that is contained uh, a few interesting artefacts. The containers that Dalton is describing are three very large cabinets, perhaps 10 feet tall. Louis explains their purpose. That was originally the Bonner Press. And every street in the town had the, would have the larger banners. So that looks like a banner of some sort back there. What's that, do you think? That's one of the banners for the Corpus Christi procession years ago that had been carried by the Pioneer Association or members of the confraternities. That's the only banner we have left. The others have perished. The cabinets serve today as a depository for a collection of artefacts, the most striking of which is a freestanding hexagonal carved wooden sentry box style niche that once held a statue of Our Lady. This niche can be clearly seen in the earliest photograph that is in existence of the interior of the cathedral, to the right of the main altar in the area where St Joseph's Chapel is now located. It is some eight feet tall and has a six panelled pointed dome roof with intricately carved tracery at the front and finials above and below rising to a pinnacle topped by a gold painted sphere. The entire exterior of the niche is painted black with gold floral stenciling. It's quite faded. It's On the inside it's just bare wood with the exception of what you can make out was the halo. But originally from the photographs that we can see, originally there would have been floral imagery stenciled along the sides of them. Now there was no matching one for Our Lady's altar. There was a separate, um, more grander mahogany coloured one um, for Our Lady's altar. So th- this one is very well preserved though. I mean it could do with a wee bit of it clean but it's, yes, it's in it's good condition. It's, 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 it's as was. 
Also in the cabinet are six black-painted spiral-carved wooden candle holders that are perhaps five feet tall. Louis and Dalton explain that they served a special purpose. With the six black candlesticks that were used to accompany the catafalque, uh, usually at the death of a bishop or a priest. Prior to the liturgical reforms um, of the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot more um, rules and regulations, if you like. Um, for masses for the dead, for requiems such as that, you typically wouldn't have used um, our gold candlesticks that would be on the altar. Um, you would replace them with, say, silver. Silver was typically your morning colour. You wouldn't have used a gold chalice. You would have used a silver one, etc., etc. So the black or silver candlesticks would have been your penitential ones. I'm looking here and I can see two like, look like very heavy brass gates. Where are they from? They're the, the original altar rail gates for the, the top of the middle aisle. Uh, when the church was renovated in recent years, uh, they, they were obsolete. Uh, the one on the right is for the, the old baptis, baptismal font. There are other artefacts elsewhere in this room. I'm noticing around me here, there are lots of little sort of metal shields with different saints' names on them and numbers on them. That's exactly what we would have called them years gone by. We had uh, 48 of them and they represented different seats in the town, named after the, the, the shields would be named after the various saints. And uh, uh, we had confraternities on Tuesday nights and Friday nights, men on the Tuesday, women on the Friday. And those were positioned in the church, marking off the sections for the appropriate streets. If anyone's noticed on the end of the pews, there's a little brass thing where they would have been, you would well, have slid yeah, them in. I would suck it into it, yes. And they're, they're in little holders too, and each of them is decorated with shamrocks. Uh, are they green, Louis, or are they green? They're green, they're green with shamrocks. And they're hand, obviously hand, they look hand decorated as well. Yeah, they, would, they would have been stenciled. So Dalton, tell us about how you get up, the, what are we looking at here in terms of trying to get up to the bells? Well, you're looking at um, two very quite dangerous um, ladders that take you up to the Sorry. level just beneath the belfry, which is where the... Um, ropes from the alicum rack for the bells go so if you go onto that level there's a set of wheels that then further take you on up to the belfry level that connect the ropes to the bells um, and then another set of stairs takes you up to the belfry level. So it's a pretty intimidating climb though isn't it? It is a pretty intimidating climb most people tend to when they're coming back down go down back ways but we always find it's easier to go down forward. So one of the, the scariest things I thought was when you get to the very top of this room, and this is the tallest story in the tower, mm -hmm. when you get up there you've somehow to turn to the other little staircase and that's a bit of a scary bit. You have to let go. You do, you do have to let go, but it's part of the fun I suppose, isn't it? Dalton, tell me a wee bit about this thing for ringing the bell. So along the wall here there's what? It's called an elecum rack. Um, it's named after the gentleman, I believe in England, who invented it. Um, it replaced um, the earlier Carillion rack that was here. Um, it was played similar to a piano, whereas the Elecum rack is a series of eight ropes um, that are literally just pulled towards you, which creates the sound um, of the bell. So if you just pull it, um, it, the rope forces the gong to move inside the bell. Whereas nowadays, that's, we very rarely use it. It's replaced with the electronic hammers, um, which sit outside the bell and just knock into the outside of the bell. But it doesn't produce as rich a sound as 
the Elkhome rap because that's what the bells were produced for. They were, they were made for the gongs to be played inside of them. And so what you've got here is basically a musical instrument for playing the joy bells. Yes. And it's, each, each rope is numbered. And so what do you do, Dalton? You have sort of a... There's sort of like a sheet similar to like a piano um, organ kind of a sheet. But instead of notes, it just contains like a, a, a number sequence. So say like five, five, three, two, four, nine, six... Something like that. So you just need to have the sort of tune in your head for what you're playing and then follow along with the numbers. It would be remiss of us to talk about this bell ringing mechanism without asking Dalton for a demonstration. Perhaps you will recognise the tune. course the tune was Hail Glorious St. Patrick. So we're looking over here and in the cathedral side of it there are two magnificent stained glass windows that I suppose maybe people only get to see at certain times of day when the sun. Uh, yeah if, if, if many people look at it they mostly see just a dark kind of window throughout the day it depends at certain at certain moments throughout the day typically the late afternoon you can make out um, the window and it's unfortunate it's just due to the windows in the bell tower don't reflect the light well to that window, but it's a magnificent window of the Annunciation. So the plan to add a tower and transepts and their designs are entirely thanks to George Ashland. Or are they? There are three tantalising pieces of evidence that suggest that the cathedral's original architect Thomas Duff planned these additions himself. Firstly, and perhaps most compellingly, there is a pair of stone tablets with Latin inscriptions in the processional hallway of the sacristy that were placed there to commemorate the official granting of the rank of cathedral in 1919 and the solemn consecration in 1925. Referring to the improvements made to the cathedral, the inscription says, All of this work was carried out with care and great skill by the well-known architects Ashland and Coleman according to plans drawn up by the outstanding architect Thomas Duff of Newry. Of course, this plaque was not installed until a hundred years after Duff finished work on the cathedral. But would the bishop of the day have allowed such a statement to be engraved in marble and permanently affixed to the wall of his cathedral if he wasn't aware of some evidence to support it? A second piece of evidence lies in Duff's only partly realised plans for Armagh Cathedral. If you look at his drawing of the proposed design scheme, you can clearly see a square, spireless tower like the one at Newry with a strikingly similar West Somerset-style crown. It's important to note that when the tower was constructed at Newry, there was probably nothing like it anywhere in Ireland. Only the fact that Ashland later designed a similar tower for St Patrick's Church in nearby Dundalk might give us the false impression that the style was common here. The third piece of evidence lies in a photograph of the cathedral in its original form, clearly showing the top of one of the two square spireless towers that once stood at the eastern end. Once again, these have that West Somerset style crown, although they appear to have been less decorative than the crown of today's tower. Despite these enticing clues, we can't say with any degree of certainty that Duff planned or designed a tower and transepts for Newry. It should also be said that we would not claim that Ashland didn't modify or enhance any such designs. 
perhaps one day plans will be found from either Newry or Dundalk that will provide further evidence to support this theory. In the next episode, we will learn about the construction of the transepts, a new organ gallery, porches, altars, communion railings, confessionals, and the decoration of the interior of the cathedral. This episode was written, produced and presented by me, Mark Byrne, with additional material adapted from various works as detailed in the description, including new newspaper sources recently found by Dalton Short. This episode features original music that was composed and performed by Kevin Canavan. Thanks for listening.